Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 75, recorded on the 4th of July, 2019. Uh, I am your host, Don. Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 75, recorded on the 4th of July, 2019. Uh, I am your host, Don Kamarechka, to geek out about all things photography on whatever we can drum up in the news cycle. Uh, kind of a slow news cycle on the Canada Day, Independence Day kind of holidays uh, right now in North America, anyhow. But we have found some interesting stories to discuss. Uh, and with me to discuss them is somebody that I really should have on this show more often. Uh, known as a digital photo mentor by name and trade, uh, and a personal friend of mine, Darlene Hildebrandt. Darlene, how are you doing? I'm well done. How are you? I'm great. Uh, you know, we were just talking uh, before we started recording about temperatures outside. It is stinking hot here right now, and I'm preparing for a photo workshop this weekend, which thankfully the temperatures go down a little bit by the time Saturday and Sunday roll around. But mowing the lawn when it's 32 degrees Celsius is not mm, fun. No, and here we've had rain, 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 rain. All of our plants and our tomatoes. We had hail the other day. It was crazy. They're all sad. Very sad. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can imagine. Tomatoes love uh, love heat. And uh, thankfully, well, we now have it here. It's been a weird spring. I still have columbine that are blooming in the yard and irises. And that's usually well done into the spring. It's so. very weird. Yeah, it's very weird. It's weird. But hey, it gives some great opportunities for my students coming in on the weekend to photograph things that are normally out of season there so uh, and we'll have, fireworks we'll tonight in the in the states so happy independence day for our american friends yeah we had uh of course our canada day celebration a couple of days ago and uh, our city waterfront has um an air show that they do uh, i think every other year now it's becoming a consistent thing so we had the snowbirds flying by and uh always a great thing my, my daughter sees them from our window so she was just running back and forth across the house mm -hmm. seeing these cool planes flying in formations over our backyard Neat. um yeah, we had fun. Okay. Uh, before we get into the stories, though, uh, Darlene, uh, what, what's new and exciting with you? We haven't talked for a little while photographically. What's, uh, what's keeping you busy? I know. Um, been busy with tours. Uh, we've been expanding. We now have, whew, I can't even think of how many tours. We have six or so. I've got Peru coming up end of August. Uh, we have India, Northern Thailand, Cuba, which is exciting because we haven't done Eastern Cuba before, and we were able to pull it off um, and bring Americans with us because we're working under the rules, even under the new rules, the support of the Cuban people. So um, that's exciting. Um, I'm just about to launch Vietnam, and we have Morocco and Bhutan as well. So yeah, it's been busy. I've got um, myself and a couple other guys that work with me as tour leaders, and we're just having a blast. That sounds a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I've got a tour coming up to Iceland in October, which I think there's still a few spots available. Anybody curious wants to hang out with me for uh, uh, a week in the back half of October, let me know. Um, but these tours, Darlene, you know, a lot of work goes into planning them. Uh, have you scouted all of these locations yourself? Do you depend on uh, experts in the field that know these places like the back of your hand? How does that all shape up and go down? A little bit of both. Um, like I said, I have two tour leaders that work with me, and one of us has been to the location beforehand. Um, Peru coming up, both Daniel and myself have been there before, so we worked on that together. Um, we also are working with a guide in Peru who is actually a photographer as well, and we have the same deal in Vietnam. So we have an extra bonus of they know where the great photo spots are. So not only can they tell us about the history of the country and their culture and all those things, and we can learn about that stuff as we go. 
Uh, but they know all the all the great photo spots and what time to get there and things like that. You know, like, for example, we're, we're making a visit to Coca Canyon, which neither of us have been to before. And he's like, okay, we need to get there by like 7am or the condors are gone. So we're like, okay, he knows, he knows the deal. So yeah, it's not just the location. Yeah. It's, it's timing, like not only the time of the day, but the time of the year. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and understanding the behavior of, you know, like you said, the condors or any creatures that might be in and about a particular region. Um, if you're there at the wrong time and you can't really guarantee anything, you know, I've, I've had some photographers take, uh, you know, people through Algonquin provincial park, which is mm-hmm. close by and, uh, you know, they're doing like a wildlife tour and they might get completely skunked. They might yeah. find absolutely nothing, but Those darn uh, animals just don't cooperate. <laughs> I know they, they don't sign contracts. Ugh, they don't know we're coming for a photo shoot. Come on, you guys. Exactly. But sometimes you get incredibly lucky and then you, you get the magical shot. But that's just kind of the, the, the game you play with these photo tours. You, you're never certain. Like in Iceland, I'm hoping for auroras. Yeah. And we've planned so that um, a lot of the accommodations, you can walk out in the middle of the night and you've got like a waterfront in front of you or a mountain backdrop nice. or something that, uh, you know, even if it's not a planned thing, uh, you know, you've got that opportunity yeah. uh, to, to possibly take advantage of it. We're working on that for Sapa in Northern Vietnam as well. Um, last time we stayed at a homestay and we're looking at something similar like these lodges, but the one that that I want to get um, I'm just finalizing all the details now is up at the top of one of the hills when you literally open your door and there's the rice terraces right in front of you so same idea we're hoping for a beautiful sunrise beautiful sunset which we did not get last time you know we got clouds and haze but like I said, the weather doesn't cooperate either. So what can you do? You just yeah. hope for the but, best. But uh, it's, it's a worthwhile endeavor. If anybody hasn't totally. gone on a, on a photo workshop, uh, like a tour uh, into a foreign land, it's not – you can do it yourself, I'm sure. And you can do all the research and plan it out yourself. But when you've got the energy of a group of photographers that kind of feeds your own creativity, it makes quite a big difference. And we, we tend to go to places that uh, – like India, for example, where a lot of people don't necessarily want to go themselves or they're not adventurous travelers. Um, so coming in a group is also like safety in numbers, you know, they don't know the language and um, those kinds of things. So we, we've had people that come with us that say, yes, they travel on their own and, you know, with their spouse or what have you, and they can do all those things. But so there's something also about the simplicity and the, the beautiful thing about having somebody else arrange it for you and you just show up right? and you don't have to worry about any of the logistics your, exactly. your mind is firmly in just a photographer up. mindset and we'll be there to help you get great photos exactly awesome well uh darling thanks for being here let's get into the stories again i mentioned slow news week but there is still some interesting stuff that we can opine on here all right um so uh from dp review a modular 5K octopus camera supports swapping in different sensor modules. Now, um, in the cinema world, uh, especially with cameras, uh, you know, from Red and, and other manufacturers, they're basically modular. You can swap out certain components together. You can't change everything. Like you, uh, there, there are certain things that are kind of hardwired within a particular body, but then you can swap that body out and uh, and what have you. So uh, this is a new approach that is kind of a, it's not a DIY approach. It's a little bit more buttoned down than that. But the components that are going into this are pretty well off the shelf pieces. So um, the camera measures about uh, just under um, 
uh, four, uh, four and a half inches cubed. So it's a fairly compact design for this particular uh, kind of camera. And it can use one of two different sensors. One is a Sony uh, one inch sensor. One is a full frame sensor, uh, one at 4K, one at 5K in terms of the design. And it uses an Intel NUC um, that has the ability to possibly be upgraded over time running Linux. This is kind of the, um, I've had people ask me like well why don't camera manufacturers let you run your own software on the camera or why why can't you uh you know have a little bit more control over something well if you want control this is going to give it to you and then you might realize why that's a bad idea right Uh, what what do you think about this kind of concept and where people are going with it well two things struck me when i when i looked at the picture i've never heard of this first of all but and i'm not really a video expert by any stretch of the imagination but when I saw it, it physically reminded me of my old film Hasselblad camera because it's a big square box, right? Which is what the Hasselblad was. And you, same thing, you know, you have the camera body, which is literally a square, the back, which holds the film and the lens. And this looks exactly the same kind of idea. So I'm like, hmm, they're kind of, you know, drawing from old school. And the second thing it reminded me of was building your own computer. You know, like my husband is a is a, a tech guy, is a, you know, even far more geekier than probably either of us. Um, and he would, you know, build his own computer, choosing the hard drive, choosing the this, and then, you know, putting it all together and in a casing. To me, that's that's way more work than I'm willing to do. And I don't have the knowledge to choose the right parts, right? So I think that there's an application for people that want to have those options, um, but it's not for everybody. Right. And like I, I've built my own computers for years. Uh, the computer that we're currently talking on is a custom dual processor, water-cooled beast of a machine. Um, and, you know, choosing all those components carefully was, uh, I mean, I knew how to do it and I did a lot of research, but it's not something that you can, uh, you know, just casually glance over something and say, right. yeah, yeah, I need these things and throw it Right. It's not like going to the restaurant and ordering side dishes. Exactly. Not not quite the same thing. No. But in, in this scenario, I mean, if you have a, a, a Linux operating system, you can upgrade it. You can put whatever software you want on that to possibly customize it. Um, effectively, what I can assume that they're doing is taking the basically a data dump off of the sensor. So raw data and pumping that onto whatever internal storage device it has. That's the, the purpose of the um, of the computer inside of this thing. Now, every camera has a computer and different manufacturers will market them like Canon is their uh, Digic processors and it's proprietary technology and what have you. Uh, And everybody has their own name for whatever processor that they put into it. But it's a computer at the end of the day. Right. And so you have a computer here that's more standardized. And you could potentially upgrade the uh, the hardware, the, the the processor inside that Intel NUC. And uh, w- but why? I mean, if it's not good enough right out of the gate, then maybe you get a new sensor module that requires uh, a new uh, computer system, but you can still use the same lens mount and cage and other components within that, the same storage functionality. And I guess the same is true of, you know, upgrading your own computer. You know, your graphics Mm -hmm. card gets outdated over time. You might need to upgrade that particular component if that's uh, where the bottleneck is. But, you know, you see... From camera manufacturers, we're talking the uh, Canon, Nikon, Sony, uh, Pentax, uh, everybody. They they put so much effort and uh, cover every possible niche edge case when they're designing the firmware on these products. 
so that there is no way for them to fail or crash or corrupt data. Uh, and yeah, sometimes you'll have updates that are rushed out after a camera is released that has some critical fixes and, and what have you. But uh, most of the time, they are released being rock solid devices that you can depend on. Right. Having something like this that is based on an open platform of Linux where software is constantly being updated <coughs> for new features or bug fixes, etc. Um, <clears throat> it just... It screams to me if there's any potential flaw that could possibly cause you to lose data, this is no longer a mission-critical device. But these cameras are often used in documentary filmmaking or something where you might not get a second take or that second take becomes quite costly. Right. And uh, you're putting your money, your reputation on the line when you use something like this. Well, I would, as you were saying that, I'm thinking, okay, people that might be filming such a documentary would probably be using more than one camera. So there's that. So they would have, you know, backup built in that way. Um, but there would also be, I would imagine, less support for this type of thing. You know, if you're buying the modules and you put it together, who's going to help you with this if it goes wrong, right? Like you said, Canon does all the R&D. Um, even just my MacBook Pro, I mean, like my laptop is, it's, it's actually five years old and I've replaced the fans, I've replaced the hard drive and I've replaced the battery, but the actual, you know, guts of the thing that runs the, the everything is still the original and it's solid, you know, and I'm a Mac fan girl. Um, I love my Mac, but I don't think I would ever want a, I, I wouldn't do what you did. I wouldn't get a tricked out computer cause that's not my, that's not my wheelhouse. Well, and when something breaks, it's on you. And you kind of alluded exactly. to that. Like yeah. if, if I'm building something that is on the edge of what is possible technologically, um, you know, it being water cooled, there wasn't a lot of airflow. So the memory, uh, the, the RAM was starting to overheat. So I found some uh, some heat sinks for that that actually have little heat pipes and these giant heat sinks that come out so that it <laughs> dissipates the heat better. And I'm solving problem after problem that, you know, if this was an engineered commercial product from some manufacturer that had readily built it, they wouldn't have those problems you as the end consumer right. wouldn't see any of those issues you'd be um, calling support and saying warranty warranty well exactly and uh, i don't have a maybe the individual components have warranties on something like this but not the unit as a whole and that's another good question about this one you know if you put these together in a manner that maybe they don't recommend then what happens to your warranty exactly um so I, I don't, th this is not the kind of thing for everybody, but it does reveal some interesting possibilities for tinkering, especially because mm. you've got, um, uh, on, on this output, you've got cinema DNG 12 bit raw footage that is going to be offloaded. And that could be very useful for certain people specifically at, uh, what we can assume is going to be a less expensive price point than, um, a, a higher tier one mm. kind of device, uh, from red or some other manufacturer. So they don't uh, label any prices here, but uh, they said that it's going to be available in summer 2020. So within the next year, uh, this tech will be in our hands for anybody that wants to uh, kind of dive in, experiment and see if the flaws um, of kind of doing this piecemeal construction of a camera uh, is, is worth the risk involved. And for some cases, it might be, especially if it is at a price point, and this is going to be the key, that is substantially lower right. than those really polished end products. Uh, because if that's the case, you could get two or three of them for the cost of one of the other varieties, and, uh, and you're hedging your bets that way. Exactly.
Yeah. Uh, so we'll keep our finger on the pulse of this one. It's, uh, again, slow news week, but this I thought was a fun, uh, a fun open, uh, opener for, uh, for this episode. And I like when I can build stuff myself. I mean, I'm just a tech nerd for that. So there we go. All right. So speaking of, um, you know, the, uh, the allusion to the medium format idea, um, there was another medium format story that we can talk about. And there was one in the previous podcast as well. This one, also from DP Review, is that phase one is to introduce a multi-frame raw capture for its IQ4 camera system. So uh, phase one, their top-of-the-line products is their IQ4 system. They have a, uh, I believe it's a 100 megapixel and a 150 megapixel camera in that lineup. And the 150 also has a monochrome version. Um, this is This is interesting because none of these cameras have an in uh, an in-body stabilization system and i think that they might have teased they were trying to do something like that initially in development i couldn't find any reference to it in the actual end product in any of their specifications so when you think of a multi-shot mode on a camera you think about it typically in two ways uh one way is where uh the micro four thirds and of course uh panasonic with their s series cameras now in the full frame world will shift the sensor around using that in-body stabilizer to create a um uh, an image that's four times the resolution of just a single shot so uh, i'm shooting with the s1r right now a 47 megapixel camera becomes a 187 megapixel uh raw image which is useful for certain things on the other end, there is Sony that will use a multi-shot mode to keep the same resolution of the camera, but effectively, uh, you know, every every photo site now is not just a, a red, a green, or a blue. It's a red, a green, and a blue, uh, which in, uh, improves the quality uh, a la Sigma's Foveon sensor technology. But you can't do either of those things if you can't move the sensor inside the camera body. <laughs> so how then do you, uh, do you improve the quality when you're uh, taking multiple shots? Simply by averaging things out, which is what Sigma has done uh, in their super fine detail mode and their cameras in the past. And I think it's the only option that phase one would have had at their disposal with this current crop of cameras. Um, they're improving the quality of their product after release, which is commendable. And I'm glad that many manufacturers are doing this. But this is a steeper race now in the medium format world than it has been in the past with, uh, of course, Hasselblad and uh, now Fuji, all at slightly different sensor sizes, mind you. But it's still what, what I would consider medium format. Is this enough to keep people on board for the medium format realm? And do you think that um, there is still a huge market for the R&D to push forward very rapidly like we see with the smaller sensor cameras. You know, it's interesting because I remember talking with uh, my Kodak rep, I want to say 20 plus years ago, and he said, because this reminds me of something very similar in terms of the history of photography, uh, at the time, I mean, it was all film, right? And he said Kodak was shifting away from the pro market to the amateur market, because at the time, you know, th uh, 35 millimeter film cameras were becoming more and more popular. 35 millimeter film was was the big thing. And they were selling a lot more of it. Um, and also, they were focused on things like, you know, x ray technology and things like that. So the pro market, the professional photographer market was a very small percentage of their business. Um, we all know where Kodak ended up. But <laughs> I'm wondering about this issue here. So the medium formats and these super high end, super high resolution cameras, 
I think because so many people have cameras now, I think that's a small percentage of the market. So I think we're seeing the same kind of thing happening here. So I, I don't know how wide of an application this is going to have. Like, I don't know anybody in my circles that isn't a professional that would go for that kind of camera or need that resolution. I don't. Well, and, and here's the thing too. If you want a 150 megapixel image because um, your client has demanded that of you, yeah. Um, then yeah, you've got to have the tools of the trade to accomplish that. However, a lot of those clients... They're not going to be asking you for um, action shots at 150 megapixels. I mean, some of them might, and this would be the perfect product for that. But even the high resolution modes on something like the Lumix uh, S and S1R, they <laughs> they hit above that megapixel threshold. Uh, of course, you have to have a static subject, mind you, but for product photography, even for some more static portrait photography where you're not blowing somebody's hair around in the wind, um, you could conceivably get away without having this kind of a camera body. So the manufacturers have to make them more palatable. They have to add extra features. They have to do something to add value to the product that you are, uh, that you're buying into. But um, it's always been a niche market. The digital medium format world, when we had uh, Leaf and Mamiya and other manufacturers, even scanning backs, you could, uh, I've even seen people do a DIY job where you can take a flatbed scanner and make that into uh, the back for a large format camera. And there's a lot of fun and interesting tricks, and that's even been commercialized to some degree. But how many of these units do they actually sell versus what the R&D cost is? That's why these cameras uh, cost more than, you know, a luxury automobile in in most cases. Uh, I'd rather pay down my mortgage than uh, than buy one of <laughs> buy these because one. I I don't think I would get a significant return on investment. Do we know but, the price point on this one? Uh, I remember seeing the prices on these cameras around fifty thousand dollars, but I don't I don't know. Uh, I, there's nothing in this particular article. Right yeah, now. that's that's a mortgage. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> seriously. Exactly. But I, I was thinking that you know if if somebody didn't have that kind of pockets, big pockets, you could do. Honestly, you could do a, a most sort of pseudo panoramic image, you know, or like a megapixel or a gigapixel or um, that's the one I'm get like a gigapan where you take multiple shots and stitch them. Or you could do like a Brenizer, um method and stitch things together. Right. With, without yeah. spending 50 grand. And there's a there's a company called Giga Macro that I've talked to before um, that uh, they have a uh, a two dimensional kind of moving array uh, where you can take a, a grid panorama of artwork or specimens in a museum and uh, do focus stacking because it'll move mm. both X Y and Z and there's equipment out there that would use much more rudimentary cameras than this uh, to accomplish uh, you know substantial goals. I guess the point of this discussion is um, when you have uh, cameras like the the IQ4 uh, or anything within the system, of course, it's not just the, as you know, from the medium format world, it's the back, the body, the lens, often the viewfinder can be a separate component as well. They're, they are modular, just like our first story. Um, when you have something, even just the back from one of these uh, at that price is uh, is Fuji stealing so much market share? Is the high resolution modes stealing more and more market share? That yes, you can add extra features to these cameras, but at this price point, can these products continue to exist from the manufacturing standpoint of not having enough sales to result in a proper return on investment? 
It's a good question. Yeah, it's a really yeah. good question. I know neither of us have the answer to, but it is a question we can ask. Well, I mean, look, let's look at Hasselblad, for example. You know, like Hasselblad has come from that world of medium format from years ago. You know, I, I told you when we were talking about this by email, I have a Hasselblad in my closet. Um, it's a 500C, which is actually made the same year that I was born. So it's 1967. <laughs> and I mean, it hasn't been used in years and I've considered selling it, but it's still, it sits in a box in my closet, but they were making cameras long before that. I mean, there's a Hasselblad on the moon, I believe. Um, and look at what they've done. You know, they've And well, adapted. Hasselblad is now, they're, they're owned they by mirrorless. DJI. They have mirrorless cameras, you know, like. They, they have the mirrorless mar- uh, market and they're competing in that space, but they're owned by DJI now. And I think that's an important consideration is that their new parent company has oodles of cash in a slightly different market. And yes, they can combine those together. Um, but to have somebody that has a diversified portfolio as the owner of one of these companies, I think makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, you see companies like Olympus and Canon, they have medical imaging uh, divisions. Nikon has their microscopy division. They have all of these other things that kind of... Uh, there's a synergistic response where the cameras uh, developed on one agency or one uh, uh, division of, of the company can become useful uh, for the other. I don't think phase one has that. I mean, they've got their Capture One software, which is great. It's used by far more than just their uh, their, their camera owners. But I, I don't know if that's enough diversification to uh, to really help them forward here. But uh, I, I love their cameras. I had my hands on one at a trade show uh, recently, and it is just a uh, it's a work of art, a very expensive work of art. <laughs> yes. Well, and that's the thing, or does it become a thing that is for, um, I mean, I, I know some amateurs that have cameras that are way more expensive and tricked out than what I have, you know, like they're, they just have a lot of money to spend on it and they enjoy their hobby. So does this become, you know, sort of just a, a, a really expensive toy? Like a, like a status symbol almost. Yeah. Like some people, they want to buy the, the most expensive camera that they can uh, fit in their pocket because that's just what they want to do with their money. And that's fine. I'm envious. I wish I had enough money mm. to, to make those kinds of purchasing decisions. And so people might associate the most expensive with being the best. And that's really where a lot of Leica sales will come from. Uh, and yeah, I don't want to get hate mail from Leica owners. I have some Leica lenses and they're really well, beautifully engineered products. Um, but you also have a price point that is higher than the value proposition. Um, and that's partly because of the culture that Leica has, uh, has cultivated uh, over the years. And I guess phase one could kind of garner that market as well. Um, but anybody with an IQ4 system, you can now do a higher quality image recording if 150 megapixels as high quality as it was before wasn't good enough for you. So <laughs> so just as a side note, I'm on Sammy's camera, which is a California-based company. It looks like phase one, IQ4, 150 megapixels, 49,990. So there you yeah. go. Yeah, and so $50,000. And uh, and I'm sure uh, there are optional accessories that can drive that price sure. up even higher. So. I can't imagine the memory cards you need for that sucker. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I'm sure it doesn't shoot at a fairly uh, high rate of speed, but capacity, I think, would be what uh, what you'd be going after for there yeah. more than anything yeah. else. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move on to the next story here. And this one, I think, has some meat to it, uh, at least from an uh, opinion perspective. Um, from Petapixel, and this is a rumor, uh, that Nikon is to ditch one-third of its DSR, uh, DSLR lineup to shift to mirrorless. 
And so uh, this is uh, the Nikon Z system has been, you know, in the news quite a bit, along with the Canon mirrorless and uh, and everybody else uh, that has been announced recently. Uh, Nikon uh, currently has eight active DSLR models in its F mount lineup, everything from the D5 all the way down to the D3500 and, you know, lots of stuff in between, including the DF that's listed there, which I don't think that they'll ever have a refresh of. No. Um, but uh, now, reportedly, uh, Nikon is going to be culling this uh, considerably as they shift forward into the mirrorless market, basically putting all their cards on the table and saying, you know, if we're going to do this, we have to be all in or uh, or we just kind of pack up and go home. And this makes sense for Nikon to do, I think, because um, their F mount predates autofocus. I mean, it, they you could get a Nikon F mount lens from the 1970s and mount that on your Nikon D5 if you really wanted to. Right. Uh, and so they had that legacy carrying forward, but I think that's been really holding them back, especially when they made that transition to digital, because the way they created the um, uh, the communication pins on the lens, they're on the outer edge of um, of the objective lens barrel. And so that means that that, uh, or sorry, uh, not objective, the rear lens barrel. That means that that rear lens can only be so wide. In the pre-autofocus days, you could have an aperture as wide as f1.2. Right. And in the autofocus modern era of Nikon, the widest aperture that you could find on any modern Nikon lens was f1.4. Whereas their contemporaries, uh, Canon, uh, you know, flouted the uh, f uh, the 50 millimeter f 1.0 lens shortly after the launch of the EOS system. Now it wasn't a great lens, mind you, but that was basically knocking on Nikon's door and saying, "Hey, look what we can do! You can't touch this in terms of the specs of this lens." And of course, Canon has famously produced a lot of f 1.2 uh, lenses before, and Nikon now finally into their Z mount can push to f0.95 and possibly beyond and they've got lenses that are going to you know hit that market because they've never been able to market those kinds of uh, of apertures before now that's just one small aspect of uh you know the the problems carrying the legacy of the f mount forward but do you see this as being something that nikon has to do and where can they possibly take things now that mirrorless is all the rage well, I mean, we know that Canon and Nikon are late to the party with mirrorless to begin with, right? And I feel like they're both playing catch-up. Um, I've seen the Canon. I haven't played with the Nikon one myself. I'm not a Nikon shooter. But I've seen the um, Canon, I think it's the M, right? Um, uh, the, well, the EOS M is their uh, their crop sensor format. And the uh, the EOS R with the RF mount is their full frame mirrorless. They've gotcha. got the two systems running concurrently. Yes, gotcha. So one of my tour participants had the Canon M. Um, but interestingly enough, the Canon uh, mirrorless does not just accept Canon lenses. You have to get an adapter, even for from Canon to Canon. So your Canon L series lenses that you paid, you know, a bazillion dollars for don't fit on your mirrorless camera. So I'm interested. So you said that the Nikon ones, they do, right? They, they do not. They, they would need an adapter as they well, but, adapter but, as but well. that's within the F mount. So the F okay. mount goes from like the, the seventies all the way to now when you have the flapping mirror design. But as soon as you jump into the, uh, the Z series, which is their mirrorless mount, 
an adapter is required, partly because you don't need to have all of that space between the uh, the lens mount and the sensor. There's no mirror in there that's required. So the flange distance, as it's called, um, can be much, much shorter. And so all of the new lenses are designed around this shorter distance. But in order to make the older lenses uh, compatible with the new bodies, if you want to take all of your gear over, um, then you have to have an adapter. And if it's made by the manufacturer, it's probably going to be good, but not as good as a native lens would be on the new platform. Right. Well, and then there's a debate about, okay, if you're going to go mirrorless. So for me, I actually, um, four years ago, I ditched my Canon and I actually five almost uh, went Fuji and I hung on to my Canon for three years. I had the 5D Mark III and, you know, the whole Schwacke lenses and everything. And I hung on to it. And then I realized my Canon was always sitting on the shelf. And the only time I pulled it out was when I was teaching a class. And I realized, well, my Fuji can teach a class just as well as my Canon. And I'm sitting there with thousands of dollars worth of gear. But the reason that I switched is I wanted a smaller system because I travel. So I'm kind of, you know, maybe people are going the other way and they want medium format. They want larger. I've spent my time with four by five cameras and Hasselblad cameras and medium format. And, um, I shot weddings with a Hasselblad and a big Mets flash and a battery pack and this whole thing. And it was huge and heavy. And you know what? I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired and I want to downsize. I've got the exact same experience. I've, <laughs> I've hiked up mountains with a Canon one DX, uh, and uh, traveled across Europe backpacking with big full frame uh, camera bodies. And I, you know what? I don't want to do that again. So when I travel, I've got the micro four thirds system, which is more than capable enough and getting yeah. better all the time for travel yeah. photography. And then for the studio work, I've got a full frame mirrorless camera now. Uh, so I, I think that there's two different markets uh, and, and they have a place, but I don't, you know, it's funny because when I was working uh, with the big flagship Canon cameras, um, they're not cheap. I mean, they're like $7,000 or something like that, especially yeah. when a new model comes out. Uh, Canadian dollars, anyhow. And uh, so when I sit down and show people my work at a workshop, and I'm doing it on this $7,000 camera body, that is a $7,000 wall that people put up in front of them that says, well, if he's using that gear, I can't accomplish it because I don't have that level of gear. So for about a year, I shot with the Lumix uh, GX9, which is a nice little compact, not a flagship. uh, It's not like the G9 or the the GH5 cameras. Um, I guess it is their flagship travel camera, but it's a nice, really small camera and it's very, very capable. And so when I was doing all of my work for about a year with that camera, people kind of perked right up and they said, oh, wow, you can accomplish that with that tiny little camera. Mm -hmm. Well, I have no excuse now, right? And I think, I mean, when mirrorless first started hitting the market, it's just like when digital first hit the market, you know, the film shooters were like, oh, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not there yet. It's not there yet. And it took a couple of years because I remember going to professional photography association um, conferences uh, back in about, you know, 2002, 2003. If you took a show of hands then as to how many percent were digital versus film, it was still more 80 percent film. But hit flash forward to 2004, 2005, okay, now it's the opposite, right? And I think we're seeing the same with SLRs and mirrorless. You know, it's gone. It's People were like, no, mirrorless isn't there yet. No, it's not there yet. No, it's not there yet. And then all of a sudden, Sony came on the market with these, you know, A7s and A7Rs and so on and blew people away. And then the other guys caught up. 
Um, I love my Fuji cameras, like absolutely love my Fuji cameras. I know the, the I- earliest mirrorless cameras, uh, like you mentioned, the Sony a seven and, uh, the earliest, even flagships from, uh, you know, Lumix and Olympus and everybody else. The real drawback for me in those early days was yeah. the electronic viewfinder was terrible. Yes. Um, it was laggy. It was low resolution. It, yeah, as soon as the, the sun went behind a cloud, the frame rate would drop. Um, these things were not great. And it was the, the, the bottleneck in terms of the, uh, the, the, the enjoyment factor of using these cameras. You know, that was the one thing that, um, that slowed down everything for me. Yeah, that's got to start somewhere. Uh, you got to start somewhere. But that that I think has reached the tipping point right now, where if you look through uh, the latest and greatest electronic viewfinders, they are better than optical viewfinders uh, in many scenarios, especially yep. because you can overlay information on them. Uh, you get an instant feedback of exactly how your image uh, was shot uh, as soon as you press the shutter button without having to chimp on the back of the LCD screen because you see it right there with, uh, with your own eye. Uh, so there's a lot of advantages there that are now... Uh, kind of uh, the, the, the tide is turning. And I think that uh, the writing is on the wall for anybody making the classic SLR camera design. Um, but for Nikon and Canon, for that matter, I'm sure that their R&D cycle has cameras that are still going to come out with the flapping mirror design. And so uh, Canon, whatever their replacement to the 1DX Mark II, Nikon, whatever the replacement to the D5 is, will probably be, and this is just me predicting here, it'll probably be on the classic lens mount, uh, but they'll make a version of it uh, shortly thereafter, within one year uh, of the release of that product for the mirrorless market. And that is a nail in the coffin because that means that the pro market, that is the swan song. That last flapping mirror flagship camera will be the final big push of research and development into that market. Now, Canon did this with the um, uh, the EOS 1V, I believe, which was their last film camera. Uh, and they they realized that everything was moving towards a digital workflow, so much so that uh, you could even uh, record the EXIF data uh, of every frame of film and you could import that when you were scanning your files so that you would have the EXIF data digital for the film that you had been shooting at the time. And it seems kind of silly to go through all of that effort, but the digital shooters had all of that information mm-hmm. at the ready and the With film shooters tips. didn't. Yep. So, you know, if you wanted that and you still wanted to shoot film, then that was how you were able to do it. Um and they kept that in their uh, their product catalog for quite a long time. I don't think that they currently sell them anymore, but um, that was the swan uh, the swan song of of the film cameras from Canon, and it it was kind of bridging the gap. And I think that uh, we are within the next year or two, we're going to be seeing all of that happen, and uh, the standard optical viewfinder will be a niche product, if anything, in the camera manufacturers lineup. Well, and I was going to say the the you know the fact that Nikon and Canon that you can get an adapter and and if you are already invested heavily like I was in Canon lenses and you want to go to mirrorless but you don't want to reinvest all your lenses now you have an option just get the adapter right especially some of the most expensive lenses are uh, telephoto lenses right yep. and you can see like really big price tags on those guys um, there's no real benefit to having aside from maybe uh, better autofocus from new algorithms and, and what uh, what have you. Um, there's no optical benefit of having a lens, uh, a telephoto lens designed for a mirrorless platform. Uh, there is optical benefits for wide angle lenses because the rear element can be closer to the sensor. That makes a lot of sense. Um, 
But for a telephoto lens, the rear element is often far inside the lens barrel itself. So having a, uh, a shorter flange distance doesn't make that lens design uh, any any better. So if you want to take those really expensive, you know, the, the lenses you invested in that you wanted to last your career sort of thing, you can easily take them over to these new bodies. Yep. Um, and the thing is that the mirrorless ones, I mean, I've seen some of these Sony lenses that have just come out now. <clears throat> They're huge. So the, the mirrorless lenses aren't any smaller. You know, if you want a, a lens for wildlife, you're still going to be paying, you know, $4,000 plus, and you're still going to have a six pound lens. Because the image circle still has to be the same size, yep. right? So if you have a 36 by 24 millimeter full frame sensor, then the lens, the optics in front of that, there are some caveats where it might be able to be slightly smaller based on lens design. But especially for those big lenses, it's not going to make any meaningful difference. If you want to have that same approach, I mean, yeah, you can go with the uh, the Olympus, um, uh, what is their new uh, gripped flagship, uh, the EM1X that uh, if you put a telephoto lens on that, well, yeah, sure. A 400 millimeter lens on that thing is going to be much smaller than a 400 millimeter lens on a full frame camera. Uh, and the, the quality of those sensors is definitely getting there. Um, like if you were to take, uh, I used the, uh, the Leica 100 to 400 millimeter lens on my GX9 when I was traveling. And to have the equivalent of 800 millimeter focal length that I can carry along with me just in uh, whatever man purse I was taking with me across <laughs> Europe at the time. Uh, it, it was wonderful. It was very freeing. Uh, you're not going to get that freedom when you go full frame mirrorless because the lenses still have to be just as big. So uh, caveats all around. But Nikon, I think that this these rumors, um, they, they ring a sense of truth to them because if Nikon sticks to their guns of the F-mount, um, they will be overrun very quickly within the next five years. Their market share is going to drop. So um, they have to kind of jump ship. And here we're seeing it happen. Agreed. Right. Yep. All right. Let's move on to the next story. Um, kind of a fun one, kind of a head scratcher. Uh, also from Petapixel, Canon is crowdfunding a clippable camera through Indiegogo. So um, imagine uh, just like one of those little carabiner clips um, that has uh, a little rectangular camera on it uh, in a novelty assortment of colors that uh, kind of like a GoPro that you can clip on your knapsack or on your zipper or something to that effect. And that's about where the appeal ends for me. Um, <laughs> because hang it on your cat's collar. And if you want to see where Fluffy's going. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or, you know, attach it to my uh, my three-year-old daughter's zipper and see where she runs to and then vomit at the quality of the footage <laughs> as it exactly. flops around and makes me nauseous. Yeah, I'm uh, guessing the image stabilization in this thing is probably not going to be that great. And even if it is, you can't overcome, you know, having a clipped on. I, there's, it's not going to be solidly mounted to anything. No. It, on the back side, uh, I mean, I can't see the entire back based on the photos, but it doesn't look like there's a tripod mount. There might be, and well, I hope I that there is. I don't think something. it's even a photo because it's a rendering. Uh, like I don't think they've built this thing yet. Right, and that's probably why this yeah. is going on to Indiegogo, where they're right. going to crowdfund and judge the interest. Um, so. I think as a product, I mean, if the price point is right, maybe it could have some niche uses. Um, this kind of product, I think, is more popular in Asia than it is in mm, North America. For sure. Uh, the, these wearable personal cameras are a thing, and there's other people, other manufacturers that have uh, that have produced them quite Reminds successfully Reminds me of the like past. the police body cam. <laughs> kind of, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, I, sure, uh, whatever. Canon, 
come up with more crazy, unusual concepts. But you see Canon produce these weird concept cameras and they show them off at trade shows um, and they never see the light of day. And I remember them showcasing, a friend of mine showed me a photo of a stereoscopic 3D camera that Canon had been working on in the past, never came to market because again, that is such a small niche. Here's where this gets interesting. A large manufacturer like Canon using a crowdfunding platform like Indiegogo. It's not up yet. You, there, there is a page and you can kind of sign up and, and I guess you'll get some uh, some details when uh, the campaign is ready to launch. I put my email address in. so I did too. I'll, I'm curious. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to see what this uh, kind of comes out to. But uh, if you have a large manufacturer that isn't certain if a particular niche product is going to have enough interest why would you then take the risk in manufacturing it? Um, yes, Canon has done this in the past. They've had versions of uh, uh, of their uh, prosumer cameras modified for astrophotography. I think they made a version of the 7D that had a barcode scanner functionality so that if you were doing uh, like school portraits and right. taking hundreds of yep. child pictures a day, you just scan the barcode and then take the kid's picture and so that it would be a little bit more customizable. And uh, so Canon's no stranger to modifying their equipment. But for these strange niche products... This is actually great because if I was interested in, say, like that stereo camera, because that's one of the things that has uh, has my interest is 3D photography, um, I would have pledged for a, uh, a, a version of that camera. And that would have helped make it come to market. This is a marketing tool, not only uh, gauging interest. So, I mean, I've got my book on uh, Kickstarter right now, uh, mm-hmm. my macro photography book. And thank you to everybody that has contributed to that. It's uh, above and beyond my wildest dreams with about a week and a half left in there. Um, but it's not just once you pass that funding goal, people want to support the project. Uh, but it becomes a marketing tool, a marketing venue for you to uh, drum up interest within your product uh, as the countdown kind of clicks closer and closer to the uh, the finalization of of however long this campaign is going to be. Usually they're between 30 and 60 days. So um, if other manufacturers were to come out with products using the same mentality, we could have a lot more unusual designs, a lot more niche products that that fit into uh, very small uh, segments of uh, you know the photographic industry, uh, like this wearable camera market, that I think would be kind of interesting. Uh, I, I would hope that other manufacturers like, uh, who knows, Nikon, Sigma, Panasonic uh, would kind of test the waters with this approach. Other smaller individual manufacturers, startups have been using this for years. uh, And I'm glad that the big guys are kind of uh, taking note that this is a useful strategy. Have you ever done a Kickstarter yourself? I haven't. Um, I made a calendar several years ago, and I sort of did like a, just a pre-order on my own, right? So basically, if I got enough orders, I built it. So it kind of the same idea. Um, so I totally I, I like their idea. I mean, I don't have a problem with the fact that it's canon, like they still want to gauge interest before they invest their money in it. I'm, I'm curious to see the biggest question I have is where price point is it going to be at? You know, if this thing is under 100 bucks, I'm in. Like, I'll give it a go for a hundred bucks, right? Like a GoPro is what, if you get, you know, a top end one, you're, you're paying five, $600 for a kit or so on. If I can get a little camera that does video and stills, you know, in places where I don't want to take my, my regular camera, like let's say, for example, there's a lot of things that I do when I travel, uh, riding a camel and crazy things or, um, 
what comes to mind is like, if you're um, like, for example, if you go uh, do a skywalk in, in Auckland, which I haven't done where you can actually walk on the outside of the tower or you can walk across their bridge up on top of the bridge, you cannot take a camera. And I think Sydney Harbor has the same thing. You cannot take a camera because they don't want you dropping it on the traffic and killing somebody. Right. Plus they want to sell you their pictures, but there's a lot of places where you can't take a camera. Right. But if you have this little thing clipped on your, on your jacket or your shirt, they're probably not going to say anything because they don't even, maybe don't even know it's a camera, you know? Yeah. Or if you, if you, if you, if you're a photojournalist and you want to have this clipped on your camera bag and just always have it rolling, um, it'll shoot 1080p footage at six, frames per second uh no uh saying if it has a, a expandable or external storage uh at this particular stage in the game but um if you were in a uh, a war zone or in an area of conflict i was gonna and, say now we're talking spy camera and well now it's not necessarily spy camera but what if you're like in a duck and cover mode and that mm-hmm. camera on your back is seeing an entirely different perspective of the events unfolding right or what if you are a photojournalist even here within north america where the police are becoming increasingly more brutal on people taking uh photos and video of With their, their happenings in the yep. public and yeah we hear reports all the time about photographers getting arrested in public because of yep. uh you know police overstepping their bounds right well what if you had a second camera always recording even if it was just for the audio purposes clipped on your visor in your car or something clipped on the visor of your car or again on uh the strap of uh of of your camera bag uh, forward facing so that it was seeing similar to the same stuff as as you are you said the um the police uh you know vest cameras uh that immediately came to mind well let's you know throw that back uh you know on the on the citizen journalist side of things and have that same kind of perspective yeah, I think it has interesting applications. And like I said, if it's the right price point, uh, I'm in, I'll give it a go. Why not? Because if it's small enough, for me, when I'm, and everybody has a different needs for their cameras and stuff, right? And some people have to have the latest, greatest everything. I'm going to make fun of my partner, Daniel, because he's got the GFX, you know, medium format Fuji. He's also got the X-T2, and then he's got a drone, and now he wants the new GFX. So it's like, you know, I'm, he, he's, he'll be in, I'm sure. Um so there's and they say that, early birds get 30% off. We don't know what the price is going to be. We don't know 30% be, off of what. Yeah, we don't know. But, you know, there's people that always want to have the, the latest gadget. And I think they're, they'll be in automatically. Um, and then there's also people that just want simplicity. simplicity you know, like, um, I don't want to spend $500 on a GoPro. Like, I don't do enough adventure type of things, you know, that it makes and, it and for the, the, for me. What, what I would imagine this would be useful for, I wouldn't need it to record 4K video. You know, this is kind of a secondary thing. It's not going to be a primary camera, which no. is a lot of times the GoPro is exactly that. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, we'll see where this goes. Ooh, imagine um, clipping this sucker to a, to a drone. <laughs> or, you know, uh, th- this would be kind of a fun thing if, um, you know, I- I've seen like uh, falconers uh, that have uh, trained birds of prey. Yeah. Uh, and there's a place around here that has some uh, in a um, rehabilitation facility and what have you. You could have like a little vest on some of those birds and you can oh. have this kind of clipped into the front of that. Oh, I need you to go. You're going to have to do some research now. Go on YouTube later, everybody, and search for chicken cam. So <laughs> did you know, here's a, here's a trivial bit of information for you. Did you know that the chicken's head has is a stabilizing stabilizer? unit? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So you put that camera on that chicken's head because somebody did that with a GoPro and he's literally moving the chicken around and the head was staying still like the camera was absolutely still. So chicken cam. There you go. All right. Another use for Final chickens. Final words. Uh- <laughs>
Thank you for that uh, bit of uh, almost useless knowledge, Darlene. Uh, okay, let, let, let's get into our uh, picks of the week. Um, but before we do, Darlene, where can people find you online? They can find me at digitalphotomentor.com. And uh, I think you said I could mention my webinar we're doing next week. Absolutely. So we talked about tours earlier. So we started a new series of, of webinars called Show and Tell, where my partner and I literally just share our images. Uh, we've done one on India. And we're doing one on Peru coming up. And I've got a short link for you. So it's digitalphotomentor.com slash Peru webinar. And uh, sign up for free. Come and join us. Watch as we play play around with our images and talk about stories of, of Peru. And if you're interested in coming to Peru with us, we have two spots left and there'll be a special offer at the end. Awesome. And uh, of course, you can find all of the links on social media to where people can find you at digitalphotomentor.com. If you want to follow the latest and greatest musings of Darlene, uh, all the links will be there and in the show notes at uh, photogeekweekly.com. We have a really active Facebook group as well. So if people want to just come and and share images and talk about photography, uh, I'll give you a link to the group as well. Perfect. Awesome. So uh, let's get into the picks then. Darlene, what is your pick of the week? My pick is LifePixel, which does infrared conversions of cameras. So I upgraded my XT Fuji X-T1 to the X-T3 last fall. And my plan is to take the one and convert it to infrared because I've been meaning to do that for a while. And they are my, my conversion of choice. And they don't just do infrared conversions. They also do full spectrum conversions and ultraviolet conversions. And I've had cameras modified uh, from them in the past, one for infrared. Um, uh, My favorite, and uh, people might go back and forth on this, but my favorite is uh, the 720 nanometer. That's the standard conversion. Um, Because you have the the option to play around with a little bit of false color. You can get some blue skies and you've got the nice white trees. Um, Or you can make a, a solid black and white conversion, but it does have that nice infrared contrast to it. Um, I also had a, uh, actually a camera that I'm selling right now is a 1DX uh, modified for uh, full spectrum photography. So you can put a filter on the front of the lens that makes it just a regular camera again, or you can choose any infrared ultraviolet filter of your fancy and, uh, and shoot with that. So um, this is kind of a fun thing, especially you mentioned your old camera collecting dust, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Where yeah, you keep it because, okay, well, I might need a backup. And, and then, a, you know, six months go by and you haven't touched the thing and the batteries are dead. And you're thinking, well, it's just sitting there depreciating in value. I've got two options. I sell it or I do something else with it. And converting to infrared makes a lot of sense because you've got a parallel universe in your own backyard, in your own neighborhood. The same stuff that you think is boring and mundane mm-hmm. in an infrared photo Changes is just the game. fascinating. Changes the game. Yeah. And that's kind of what I was thinking is that I don't, for my, for me, my backup is not the X-T1. Like when I'm traveling, my backup, I take my X-100F, which is my little point. It's not really a point shoot. It's more of a rangefinder fixed lens, Fuji, which I absolutely love for street photography. Um, so that's my backup. And, you know, barring they both fail on a trip, I got my phone. So I generally don't even pack the X-T1 with me when I go anymore. So if I convert it to infrared... I might need a bigger bag. <laughs> How much do these conversions cost? I think it's about $400. I haven't looked at that exactly um, in a while. If, if you're going a flagship camera, it might be around that point. But if you're uh, lesser cameras or smaller sensor cameras, the prices can go down, I think, to around $250. That um, sounds about right. 
And uh, and they also have a rush service, or at least they used to. If you uh, if you decide you want it, you want it now. You can skip the line by paying an extra fifty or hundred dollars. I can't remember, but uh, they're a great company. Um, you know, full uh, full disclosure. Um, uh, I do have uh, on my website there is a, a link uh, where you can get a uh, a conversion done. If you click through there, I've got an affiliate code for them. But um, if uh, if if you're worried about what they'll possibly do to your camera, maybe they'll break it. They own their mistakes because when they converted my uh, my one um, DX to full spectrum. I got it back and there was a lot of weird lines running across the images. Um, they realized that something had kind of come uh, unstuck between the sensor and whatever logic board it was on. I sent it back to them uh, in the process of trying to fix it. They broke the sensor and they ordered a brand new sensor from Canon and mm-hmm. put that into that. Wow. And they said that that happened like that might happen like twice a year if they have some catastrophe like that. It just happened to happen to, to me. And uh, I got a brand new sensor in my 1DX. Wow. It didn't cost me a penny. Nice. So, uh, yeah, they, they're pretty good at uh, being responsible with your camera once they get it in their hands. So, anyhow, I've, I've enjoyed their service as well, Darlene. You'll uh, you'll have fun with an infrared camera. Well, I actually saw an infrared black and white film years ago. So, yeah, I'm excited to give it a, give it a play. Awesome. Uh, on the other end of, uh, of instead of mucking with uh, false colors in infrared, my pick is trying to get accurate colors in uh-huh. the visible spectrum. Good matchup. And, uh, and uh, so X-Rite is a, a company that, uh, that I've worked with closely in the past. I'm one of their Colorati members, and they've just announced um, a number of uh, their Color Checker Classic uh, in different sizes. And so you can get one as big as 40 by 60 inches in size if, uh, I don't know, you're I, I don't know who would use something that big in terms of a color check, but they've got it uh, as an option. Um, to me, what's interesting is they made one that's only about an inch and a half across. And so this is perfect for macro photography. And so this color checker classic nano um, comes in a very, very small size. It's quite dainty. Um, but if you're trying to like, if you're doing anything, uh, you know, scientific, say you're an entomologist and you need accurate colors. If uh, I do a lot of product photography on a very small scale and people come to me for that. And if I don't have to muck about and post to get accurate colors and I can get them right out of the gate, then that's perfect. Some flowers, if you want to get the colors of them accurate, they're just completely out of gamut because they're just a brilliant magenta. And it's hard to dial that back in to make it feel like it's real. So uh, if anybody's not familiar with how these work, you basically take a photo of uh, of this little, it's basically a a grid of different, uh, very specifically calibrated colors. And then you run that through the X-Rite software. It'll generate a camera uh, color profile for you that you activate in Lightroom or whatever other piece of software can detect those camera profiles. And uh, away you go. You're color calibrated in camera. And it, of course, works best if you've got a calibrated screen and everything else so that uh, it all lines up perfectly. But previously, on a small scale, you weren't able to do this. Uh, now you can. And uh, if this uh, if this saves me time and money for some of my professional product photography gigs, it's well worth it. But it's not cheap, now, especially for something of this diminutive size. I mean, I've paid a lot for memory cards. It's about the size of a memory card, not much bigger than that. And it costs $185 US. So it's not cheap. It's not for everybody, Um, but if color accuracy is important to you on a small scale, and this is going to save you time and effort, then it's going to pay for itself quickly. Yep. I think you nailed it right there with the commercial market. Products need to look like the right, they they do look accurate. 
Well, and especially if a product is designed um, with a Pantone color and the yep, manufacturer totally. specifically chooses a very identifiable shade of blue or red, you need to make sure that any photos of that product have exactly that quality, right? So that's new from X-Rite. They sent me uh, an early uh, an early version of it to, uh, to test out and I used it in one of my recent images and it worked perfectly. Uh, on B&H, you can see that it still says new item coming soon, but I'm sure they'll have stock of them shortly, uh, but they can be pre-ordered. And the links to that and of course to LifePixel, you'll find in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Darlene, it's been a great chat. Thank you so much for being in the co-pilot seat once again. Uh, I think it's your second time on the show, and I'd like to have you back on again in the future. It's always great to chat. Anytime. I'll send you a link to uh, our guide in Vietnam, who is a friend of mine now as well. Uh, His name is San Nguyen. Um, He's actually in the LifePixel gallery, so I'll send you a link to his gallery, and he's won some awards for his images. Oh, perfect. I'll I'll make sure I get a link to that in the show notes along with LifePixel itself, because it's one thing to contemplate what infrared photography is like. It's another thing to see what a master of the craft can do with a converted camera to really inspire you. And he's got some in the full color and black and white. So yeah, his images are really cool. He was shooting some with his camera when we were there in April, and he came up with one. Um, at the lagoon we stayed at was was stunning you know you get the white trees and the sky is really dramatic i love it awesome well thank you so much again darlene uh and with that advice and with those links in the show notes check those out and then get out and shoot <laughs>